0: Welcome to Critical Thinking, Critical Issues, where today we will be discussing the human behavioural aspects of dealing with the biggest challenge of our time, climate change. I'm Vanessa Hodge, Mercer UK Sustainability Integration Lead for Investments, and I'm joined today by our guest speaker, Dr Shutter Chakraborty. Shutter is a behavioural scientist whose work is motivated by the need for clear, credible science communication to urgently and proactively manage the risks that threaten human security and well-being from climate change and COVID-19. Welcome and thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Vanessa. I'm thrilled to be here. And before we get into our discussion, I'm really interested in your career path. I wondered if you could just give us a a brief career history and and really what led you to become a climate risk and behavioural scientist.
1: That's a great question. And I usually start by explaining how the penny dropped for me 15 years ago when I was a behavioral scientist just starting off my career trajectory. But now when I'm asked that question, I like to start with the present. So we know now it's so obvious to us now what's going on with climate change. The IPCC report that came out this past August said that to prevent runaway climate change, we cannot surpass 1.5 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. And what that means is we have to halve global carbon emissions before the end of this decade. And right now we're on track still, even with COP26 just happening. We are still on a 16 percent increase in emissions by 2030. So there's we'll talk. We'll get into COP and, you know, the outcomes of COP and what that means for veering off that trajectory. But still currently, that's where we are. And so this has been described by the U.N. Secretary General as a code red for humanity. And it says that we have unequivocally, as humans, contributed to climate change. So if we don't immediately change course, what that means is the extreme heat waves much of the world is already experiencing will occur 14 times more often. We know that downpours will occur 70% more frequently. And we're just going to be living in a world that has droughts and mega fires and devastating storms that are even going to be further supercharged as every incremental increase in temperature occurs so i didn't know any of this (laughs) i didn't know any of this when i was studying behavioral science and this is over 15 years ago and now what seems so obvious is what i started to realize as i was applying behavioral science actually to improve patient outcomes i was actually in healthcare initially and then when i started learning about climate change and the realities of what was coming and now we're living in it now it's so clear now it's a hashtag code red for humanity but when i was when I was first learning about it, over 15 years ago, I was like, this is insane that the science is so aligned that this consensus globally exists. And we are not every single person on this planet that's a stakeholder in breathing air and eating food and wanting to make sure they don't have to worry about how long their children are playing outside because of the risks associated with heat. It just just couldn't, it, it didn't make sense to not contribute my expertise in behavioral science to chipping away at what is going to be a massive collective effort. We need scientists, of course, we need engineers, we need artists, we need everyone that has a stake in a breathable future. And so that for me was really what it was, I, w- I started thinking through, how do I apply behavioral science to address the climate crisis? Um, and what can I contribute to veering us off this path, which really is a future we wouldn't want to wish on our worst enemies. So. That's really it's. I'm starting with the present to sort of explain the past. That's um that's my career trajectory from behavioral science, app, the application of behavioral science to climate change in a nutshell.
0: Yeah, no, that sounds really fascinating. And I've got two young children, so the whole issue has a has a different dimension to me um, than when I was looking at this a few years ago as well. And I think if you if you ask the person on the street, you know, do, do you think climate change is a serious issue? Most people would probably say yes, but actually in reality, people, companies, governance, they're, they're just slow to take action. Why, why do you think this
1: is? It's very overwhelming. So there's, a, there's reasons that we can talk about um, that are just the mental anxiety that comes from thinking about how overwhelming and how complex this is. I would say that it's even deeper than that. If we actually look at how our brains are wired... We know that we aren't designed to actually address risks that are so complex, that are so interconnected, that are so massive. We, our ancestors, were designed to, you know, basically um, procreate and (laughs) make it to age 30. And now we are in a complex risk landscape that is something that our brains haven't evolved quickly enough to understand. And so that's where we're finding ourselves with the with the risks associated with climate change. It's not as simple as seeing a snake and running away. That's all our ancestors had to worry about. That's how our brains are wired. Now we're talking about such a complex problem that it's immobilizing. It actually isn't registering to require immediate action. And there is an immediate reaction like there is for those like what our ancestors experienced, which was a flight or fight response when they would encounter an immediate risk, like again, coming across a tiger, for example. So what is the fight or flight response for a slow moving seemingly far away risk like climate change and its many ripple effects? What can we do right now? It's hard for us to conceptualize that. And it's cognitively very difficult to process, again, just because we're not wired for it. So a lot of the mobilization that you're referring to, a lot of the resistance is because we have to overcome that innate wiring in our brain that prevents us from acting right now on a problem that seems to be slow moving and far away. So that's, that's my answer as a behavioral science as to why we are not, why we are meeting so much resistance to something that is increasingly becoming more and more imminent.
0: Yeah. And when I, when I read the, um, the IPCC announcement, the code red, I went through that series of emotions, that, that feeling of, Oh my goodness, this is, this is terrible. And then thinking, well, we can't do anything about it, so we'll just carry on as normal. And then flipping to, well, maybe I should just do something about it. So it it certainly is um, a, a, a challenge and, and can fall into that, I suppose, that too difficult box sometimes. But we're yeah. recording this podcast a week after COP26 in Glasgow, and... We did see some additional progress to tackling climate change, but many commentators were actually saying that COP26 was a failure and only a few were actually saying it was a success. So are we just
1: setting our expectations too high? So we have come a long way from the initial requirements to reach net zero. It's actually shocking how far uh, we've come since then. So I'll give you an example. So India's net zero pledge, even though it's the latest one by 2070, India claims it will be net neutral. That's if it actually sees itself through, that's 87% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions and 89% of its economy will now be covered. So this is something that we never could have imagined would have happened. And there is still significant resistance from countries um, that are not necessarily meeting the targets of, that the science is being um, that the science is committed to, which is really 2050. So we still have Russia and Saudi Arabia and China that are beyond that 2050 date. But even with their later dates, even with reaching net zero by 2060, by 2070 for India, it's still unprecedented that we've come this far. So we still have this 1.5 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. That is, we're holding on with like, we're holding on with dear life to this. And the prospect of achieving it will require us actually coming back next year, all the countries coming back with Paris aligned near term, term target. So it's still alive, but it's very much going to be dependent on whether or not these countries come back and really showcase how they are going to overhaul the highest polluting sectors within their country and beyond to actually maintain this max out 1.5 degrees celsius by the end of the century and the positives aside from that the positives that we can still hold on to that 1.5 degree hope is that we do have also an unprecedented convergence between investors businesses cities that can really drive economic transformation. We really need to see actors actually deliver on it. We've seen Glasgow also accelerate the move away from coal and fossil fuels, and it's really elevated the importance of addressing this loss and damage. We need to make sure that countries that are still reliant upon fossil fuels are able to be part of this transition in a way that is fair and that is equitable. And we need to place resilience into the heart of all of this. That's a massive takeaway that came from cop 26 was this is about mitigation of course this is about making sure we stay below 1.5 degrees celsius by the end of the century it's about adaptation making sure countries are resilient in the face of the impacts of climate change that we know we are locked into and it's about financing it's those three things mitigation adaptation and financing we need to make sure that those countries that have been historically polluting the most are the ones who pay and then support the transition to a green economy in the future for all countries. I mean, it really is beneficial for everyone to lift the tides and to create incentives that mean doing the right thing is actually going to be the best option for countries. So ultimately, it is. it might be more costly upfront But ultimately, it is a better outcome because there's no such thing as climate change or pollution respecting political borders. So if we don't have everybody invested in this and incentivized to transition and to support that transition, there really is no scenario that is is positive for us as a global collective. So those were the positive things that came out of COP.
0: Yeah, and I was was, uh, flippantly thinking, you know, why should I be replacing my gas boiler with a heat pump if... China's still building coal-fired power stations. How, how much of an impact is that going to have? But but you've answered it there, that as a collective, we, we all need to work together. And I think that this is an investment-focused podcast. So thinking about the role of institutional asset owners and asset managers, again, collectively, they've got trillions of dollars to invest, and they can determine which uh, companies they choose to invest in or not. And they've also got a, a strong influence on, on corporate sustainability behaviors. So will it be the investors that save the planet?
1: So money talks. <laughs> and there is so much um, collective muscle in the asset management community that can really drive forward these different instruments to, for widespread change from regulation to tax to getting consumers on board. And this is absolutely something that can be supported by asset owners, by asset managers, and through investments, strategic investments, smart investments in companies and in governments. So if we start with regulation, we can think about how regulation actually equals the playing field, since these are legally binding and it forces companies to comply right away. So we need to use regulations as a tool. And many companies are actually already asking for tougher regulations because they wanna be more climate friendly. And they, But they also, the issue is they wanna be more climate friendly, but they also have a duty by law to prioritize profits. So if we can come up with regulations that force companies to not only prioritize profits, but also do right by the environment and weigh in um, cultural contracts and social contracts and the rights of stakeholders, such as, such as Next generations, such as non-human stakeholders like animals and just general biodiversity, like indigenous populations that have been historically underrepresented. Now we're talking about real game changer and how regulations can really uh, preserve and incentivize in a way that is 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 win win. We also need to talk about tax. I mean, it is it is just so obvious to scientists and the collective climate activist community that we need a global carbon tax. I mean, this mantra, polluters must pay. This is something that even libertarians in the United States agree with. So it's it's something that um, is global and it needs to be global because otherwise, companies that are not necessarily going to regulate themselves or are not necessarily going to be on board with these types of policies that are more voluntary, they can just move their operations to countries that don't charge a carbon tax. So for example, a proposal that takes this into account is the European Union. And it's this concept of this broader carbon tax because it would take away the incentive for companies to pollute elsewhere. And with the EU being the largest trading block in the world, that actually has significant economic power. So that's a great example of what we could be scaling outside of the European Union and making global. So that would go a really long way. We also have to remember that consumers are really important because consumers don't necessarily know what's sustainable and what's climate friendly. So there's, it's an important stakeholder class that can really be supported by the asset management community. Most people don't have the time to research what they need before purchasing something. And so it's an opportunity to actually be able to educate, to bring awareness and to drive consumer purchasing and decision making behavior in a way that is um, for them, for consumers, to make better decisions just because there's better choices available, but to also, but to also demand that uh, products and services are are being delivered in a way that is sustainable. And uh, much of this can be done through, let's say, labeling. But we have to make sure that labeling is not compromised by corporate interest and is truly independent. Otherwise. It's another example of how it can be a greenwashing tool. So these are the kinds of things that asset owners have the resources um, that consumers lack, and these resources can really be pulled together, and it can really bring together economic power to impact companies and portfolio companies. But one thing that I really want to emphasize here, it's not just about investing in companies that are already green. It's about investing in companies that actually are polluting that actually might be some of these bad actors that actually would want to move their operations across borders where there isn't a carbon tax. Um, And instead, asset managers can still support these polluting companies and use their financial power as an investor to transform them so that's where that's where money talks.
0: Yes, I agree. I think that that's got a, a lot of power. That engagement, that that stewardship responsibility that asset owners have. So we're making progress, but but still lots to do. And let's let's move on to carbon metrics and and data. I mean, carbon footprinting. It it's a good starting point to get a feel for the amount of carbon that you own through your assets, but you know, the data is a bit of a minefield. It, it's, it can be quite patchy, limited across certain asset classes, particularly in private markets. And the methodology for calculating certain metrics is, is, you know, it feels like it's constantly being updated when there's new data coming through. So the natural instinct is to to wait until we can get perfect data before we actually act on it. But is that sensible?
1: So that's a good question. We're never going to have perfect data and that cannot be used as an excuse to not act right now. And there's things that can be acted on right now, even with by the way, we are. I mean, there is so much incredible technology and um, sharing of resources that's also unprecedented. We have we have unprecedented foresight um, in terms of what we can do to in terms of surveillance and data collection, where we're actually seeing. Um, impacts occur down the line, all of that is in the is already here and in the pipeline. So it's not to say that we're not going to, our data um, collection and, and actually being able to act based on data, uh, which will just result in better outcomes all around, of course. Um, it's not to say that that's not improving. It's absolutely in the pipeline and we're getting, we are every day just improving on our ability to collect and act upon data. But that being said, There's not, we don't need to wait. There's more than enough to do right now. So it's not enough, for example, for a company to state that um, plans to approach, for example, plastic waste or diverse hiring, that there's not enough data to do that. We can incorporate values into term sheets right now. Um, But in order to codify and quantify these values on the term sheet, we need to get, and here's where asset managers can really support getting founders and VCs and companies on the same page, and really hold each other accountable. So that's something we definitely don't need to wait on. We can get to right now. We can tie compensation to sustainability. We can actually ensure that sustainable investments is a tactic that different portfolio firms are putting in. We know that they're already putting it into practice, but we can really support to ensure that sustainability is permeating through a firm's culture. And if a portfolio company fails to live up to its sustainability goals, we can incentivize businesses to get on track. An example I like to use here is Norskin VC. It's an um, example of a firm that carried interest on how well an investment meets impact targets, for example, reducing carbon emissions. And if the firm's portfolio companies don't meet these impact targets, the carried interest gets donated to charity. That's very, it's, that's effective. That's the kind of thing that is really um, something, again, a good solution that can be scaled. And then we can measure impact. We don't, I mean, every, all of this will become that much more crystallized and that much more accurate with data, but that doesn't mean um, that we don't, we're not able to measure impact right now. So a startup might have a highly innovative, environmentally friendly solution, but it doesn't necessarily mean it has the in-house expertise to measure its impact across all of these different categories. So a clean energy company, for example, can understand its emissions impact doesn't necessarily, um, ha- it doesn't necessarily understand how it's impacting its local community. So we can actually use other types of companies in the portfolio to share best practices, to educate uh, additional companies on how to measure impact thoroughly. And the different resources and roles that firms have in-house, they can often create more precise impact calculations than one of a startup company could. So that's the kind of thing that we really need to collaborate on more and be able to measure impact with the skills and expertise we have ranging across the portfolio companies that, um, that are available to us. So that is, that is something I suggest we get on before all the data is available to us. But as data becomes available to us, of course, incorporate it into all of these things to be that much more crystallized.
0: Mm. And I suppose the, the other flip side is we're collecting all this data and for for people that are not, aren't familiar with the the numbers, these are new metrics for for most asset owners, you know, it can just be like a sea of numbers. You know, are these numbers good? Are they bad? What what do we actually do with it? And and it can just be a, a, a data dump in a table. Um, so so, what tips do you have in the way that this numerous data can be presented to to really help end users make sense of all the noise? We hope you enjoyed part one of today's podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts to be notified of part two. This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions.